0: Hello and welcome to the DC Wash-Up. It is producer Roscoe Whalen here and joining me in the studio today is North America correspondent Stephanie March. Hello. And North America correspondent Connor Duffy. Hello there. Against your will, dragged into the booth. That's right. As uh, <laughs> long-time, and
1: long-time listeners and friends of the podcast will know.
0: <laughs> you know, it's amazing that there's only like four or five of us in the office that do this podcast. Yeah, every time I'm like, this is a combination I haven't seen for some time. Mm. <laughs> That's right. what, what could happen when we put these flavors into the mix? Mm. Mm. It'd be exciting. nice if
2: some nerdy listener could work out how many permutations are possible of this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'd be
0: awesome. Fibonacci sequence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and full disclosure for those nerdy fans of the podcast who noticed that there was not an episode of the DC Wash-Up last week. Boom, Really just dropped the ball. Um, the excuse I'm going to run here is the fact that it was only Zoe and I that were in the office. Connor, you're off gallivanting about in the Wild West. Uh, that's a dangled carrot to watch the ABC at That's 7.30 right. next week. Yep. And very sadly, Steph, you were down in Florida covering the Parkland school shooting. And um, I would
2: have much rather been here on a podcast talking about something Russia. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. And to be honest, it was it's interesting and it's kind of part of what we'll talk about today, which will basically be that shooting and the aftermath of it. We, was Zoe and I looked at each other. It was 7pm on... Thursday night, I think, here after covering the shooting for the full 24 hours, and we weren't there like you, Steph, and we were just so drained by the prospect of having to come in and talk about the shooting. So um, it's just one of those things that permeates American culture and we see far too regularly. And I think, Steph, that's kind of where I wanted to start, um, is rewinding a week, because for you, this is actually the fifth time you've covered a mass shooting. Mm. Since you've been in America in two, and, two and, a and a half years?
2: years, yeah, which is too many. One every six months is too many. Mm. Um, one in two and a half years is too many, I would argue, as well. Right. And it does take its toll. And it was it was hard to hear a spokeswoman from the NRA say today at a conservative conference that the mass media love mass shootings because they bring the ratings and there's nothing better than, and I quote, a white woman crying over her lost child. Um, And to be honest, there's nothing about them that's positive. There's nothing about them um, in terms of covering them other than, and it sounds a bit cliche, but the resilience of the people who survive is in some ways inspiring. But once you've gone to more than one, I think that inspiration dies pretty quickly because you know that despite the trauma that these people have gone through, the brave individuals that choose to speak out, um, it doesn't seem to change anything. And that's one thing I find really difficult. These communities feel like they've had this unique experience that may very well bring them closer together in some ways. But in terms of creating lasting change, they just don't. And so it is all for nothing
0: even from a reporting perspective, it's become common to discuss what are we going to add with our coverage by covering another mass shooting? The the idea that they are the same every time, rinse, repeat, there is the shooting, there is the shock, we find out how many, we learn a little bit about the shooter, we learn a little bit more about the timeline of events, we then see some thoughts and prayers, and then we see some outrage, and then we see maybe a discussion about gun laws, and then it's too soon, and then we rinse and repeat and wait for the next one. I think I saw the boss and Globe did a front page, which basically was fill in the blank, it's going to happen again. Choose a school, choose a time, choose how many kids it's going to be or adults, this is going to happen again. Do you get that sensation, Steph, yourself when you're down on the ground covering mm. that as well?
2: Mm, very much so. It's formulaic in so many ways. I mean, yeah, you, you're right, you get there, you try and find out as much as you can, slowly information dribbles out about the shooter, dead or alive. Um, And then information starts to come out about the victims. You get medical updates, you know, thoughts and prayers. And then the arguments from the left and the right about we need to talk about gun control and it's too soon. And it is just difficult. I think the one interesting thing, if anything, that's been slightly different about this one in Florida is, which I'm sure we'll talk about, A, the students have been very vocal. And I think about previous mass shootings and who's spoken out. The Pulse Orlando nightclub, the gay community was pretty vocal, but, you know, a lot of the victims were... You know, Puerto Rican heritage and gay. So they don't have necessarily a great reach um, in terms of persuasiveness across America, being a minority group. I think about the Dallas police shooting. I mean, police officers obviously very polarizing in that sense. It was an African American shooter. Think about San Bernardino. That was a workplace um, shooting, it was a terrorist attack um, on, a, you know, extremists' place of work. Um, and I can't even remember the other one. <laughs> Uh, it sort of all blends in. But you think about a lot of those victims and survivors and not they don't have the same cachet as a child. You know, everyone's been a child or has one. And I think there's something... And if you think about, you know, people may say, well, nothing happened after the Sandy Hook Elementary Massacre in 2012 where 20 little kids were killed. But, you know, that, that was the parents talking. That wasn't the kids, and this is the kids themselves. But I think the other thing is we're getting into a bit more of a pointy conversation about what went wrong and why these things keep happening. And I think it's been very interesting to see how the FBI blatantly dropped the ball in terms of warning signs about this shooter in Florida. And, you know, there have been other sort of instances where they've said that the shooter's been flagged but they weren't able to follow up or there wasn't enough information. And it is kind of exposing flaws in possibly the background check system, possibly the FBI and possibly broader society about people not paying enough attention to these warning signs, which I think is an interesting part of the conversation.
0: And, Connor, in terms of the victims and the survivors of this particular shooting, they're they're labelling them the mass shooting generation. And Steph came back from Florida on Saturday and you were then kind of on call across the weekend. And it was a public holiday here on Monday. It was actually President's Day. And you were down at the White House where there was a die-in, I think it was, marked as. What was was the feel amongst those that had come out to rally for gun reform?
1: It was pretty extraordinary to hear people talk about having grown up through their entire time at school worrying about guns in school. So I spoke to a a couple of young teenage girls who are incredibly articulate for their age far more so than I was at that age, I don't know how they maybe Without, even now. Well yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they should be here actually. Um, any excuse to get out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Connor. Um, that's all right. But um yeah, no they so they they remembered being in grade five together and talking about Sandy Hook um and that putting you know that really put shootings on their radar for them and they're now um in middle school in middle years of high school and for them it, that's been an issue ever since and they're down there uh, marching they you know everyone thinks teenagers are lazy but it was a cold wet um public <laughs> holiday I know I would have rather have been somewhere else but they were down there um having their voices heard and um being strong and I think Certainly the youthful vigour and the fresh pictures and images of having young people challenge this established um, kind of agreed um, ongoing tragedy that exists here has created some new new momentum. But um, as you said, in Sandy Hook it appeared things were going that way for a while and then the power and the savvy of the NRA won out I also think, you know, America's inability to adapt to the Second Amendment is a cancer on their society. Um, You know, the fact that people feel that a law that was written so long ago um, after an armed revolution applies to the richest, most wealthiest country in the world today and applies to buying any kind of automatic weapon or any sort of, um, you know, thing that can do basically the most damage possible. And... You know to be fair, the Americans have a lot of great things in their constitution. The First Amendment and their commitment to free speech is something that is really sadly lacking in Australia, and that we could learn a lot from,
0: um, just as I think America could learn a lot from what we 've done with banning automatic weapons I think as well, what I think about with these incidents is we see when the mass tragedies occur, and we hear about those that lose their lives and we hear those amazing stories of survival but I just wonder about the loss of innocence generally for kids Mm. like the ones that you, Connor, was speaking to that have grown up their whole lives, that they're 15, 16, and they're at rallies asking their government to change gun laws. And they're also students that on a daily basis around America, go through code red drills and hide under tables to rehearse a scenario where their school could be shot up. And this is not
1: from a foreign enemy. This is from the enemy within. And these kids were telling me that if someone drops a book in class or there's a loud noise, they start looking around for the exits and trying to, um, you know, find a safe way out. Like, it's just an extraordinary situation. What kind of... And this is in an affluent part of America Mm. too. Like, imagine... In other cities, sort of Yeah, like.
0: and the long-term implications on children that have to go through that growing up, we're, we're yet to actually see that because they're still just kind of getting into adulthood now.
2: I worry that there's... I mean, and that's a good point that you say, that those girls you talked to were grade five when Sandy yeah. Hook happened. Columbine is sort of considered to be the first mass school shooting. That was mm. 19 years ago. Theoretically, there is no child in a school in America today who has not lived mm. in the era of mass shootings. Mm. That's an aberration. And as one of the parents said, meeting with Trump this week, the first school shooting should have been the last. Mm. And we've had how many? mass shootings in schools or whatever. But I worry that there's the potential not only for a loss of innocence, but there's sort of a a, a double trauma that could come from this, i.e. these kids are so motivated, they're so inspired, and if nothing happens and there's no tangible change and in a few weeks or a few months we're covering another school shooting, how demoralising is that going to be for those kids who've put their absolute everything into trying to fight for their lives? And I think that's something that adults need to recognise as well. It's one thing to pat these kids on the back for speaking out. Um, but how are they going to frame if they fail?
1: Yeah. Like, that's and you look at what they've achieved so far, it's so incremental. Um, a ban on bump stocks, which mm. even the NRA accepted after the Vegas massacre, but which Congress still didn't accept. It's act not on even a ban, now. it's a regulation. And, yeah. and
2: that's the other thing I think that sort of slipped away. And, you know, Donald Trump has done a um, good job of visibly um, seeming to listen to victims, survivors, and, and people like that. He even had on his card that he was holding yesterday as one of his dot points, I hear you. I mean, he's obviously trying to make an effort to be seen to be listening, whether it's genuine or not, we don't know. But it's if you break down what he's proposed, banning bump stocks, stricter background checks, um, more rigorous support for mental health, um, that's all stuff that the NRA supports. Um, Banning assault rights, arming teachers, the NRA supports, but when it comes to things like... um, Reducing access to high-capacity magazines, which is something that law enforcement, a lot of law enforcement that I've talked to at these mass shootings say would be a huge step forward because guns jam and when they, you're reloading a magazine. And if you've got a magazine that holds 20, 30 bullets, which an AR would normally hold – if, you, if the gun jams, you might have to stop and that could be the time when someone can intervene and lives can be saved. But if you've got magazines that hold 60, 70, 80, 100 rounds, um, that's really problematic. And the other one is an all-out assault rifle ban for civilians, which is something that these kids are crying for and it's probably not very realistic. But you know, the more possibly substantive measures are just not even on the radar for Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, well, and it's classic dishonesty in public life, just shifting the debate um, to other things, to conversations about mental health, which is obviously an important issue but an entirely separate one, one that most of the rest of the West struggles with without having um, mass shootings within their own societies. Harming um, teachers, all that's going to mean is that the teacher's going to be the first person targeted and realistically how proficient can you expect a teacher to be in guns, to be able to react under pressure and take down an active shooter. Um, You know, I'm sorry, but I don't know what school you went to, but my maths teacher wouldn't be able to do
0: that. (laughs) Sorry, Mr Harris. Steph, can you just maybe quickly explain for those that haven't kept up with all the iterations of suggestions, this idea of... Arming teachers—that mm. has been mooted over the past couple of days—and and what it would actually entail.
2: So it's something the NRA has been advocating for since Sandy Hook, which is six years, five or six years ago. Um, it's something that a parent raised in his meeting with a, you know a parent of a child from Florida who survived raised with Donald Trump, and it's something that Donald Trump has shown support for. Now he's arguing that he would like to see teachers um, who have some previous experience with weapons, and he suggested perhaps those who had a previous career as a Marine or a Coast Guard or a member of the Navy, I don't know how many there are in schools in America, um, and then allowing them to conceal carry-in classrooms with the idea being that, one, it would be a deterrent to potential mass shooters instead of saying schools are gun-free zones, which a lot of schools publicly advertise now, um, a potential shooter would know that there are potential lots of guns, and they wouldn't know which teachers have them. So seeing it as a deterrent, but also he argues that, you know, a mass shooting usually is over within a couple of minutes. I think the Florida one they said was about seven minutes. Las Vegas was about 11. Um, And it takes law enforcement, obviously, time to get there. So they, you know, once the first bullet rings out, a teacher would be shooting back. Now, as Connie, you just mentioned, that does, like, that does... Open the door for a host of problems. It makes teachers potential targets. If shooters come into schools and then think, well, if I take out the teachers, then at least I know those with guns are not a threat. Um, And I also just think, thinking down the line a bit, what happens in a chaotic situation when police forces arrive on the scene and they see someone with a gun? They're not going to stop and ask if you're the teacher.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I I just think you need to contrast it with the approach of British police who Mm. often on the beat don't even wear guns for the simple fact that, um, you know, as I understand it, the philosophy is that if they don't bring guns, the criminals aren't going to bring guns and as such a, you know, minuscule gun crime rate compared to here. Obviously, they have much more heavily armed terrorism police and rapid response teams. But the idea that um, more guns is going to solve the problem of gun violence is just the stupidest, most dishonest argument I've ever heard.
2: The the language being used today by the NRA and Donald Trump that they want, um, you know, that schools are soft targets and they want them to be hardened, hardened schools. And I think that, to me, just invokes images of You know, they've used the example of, you know, banks, jewellery stores, celebrities have more armed protection airports than schools. And it's a good point. But at the same token, I just – in my mind, I see a school that looks like a prison with one door in, one door out, swipe cards, um, yeah, Yeah. security checks, things like that. And that just doesn't feel to me like – place i'd want to go to school
1: yeah and airports have been targets of foreign um terrorist groups groups that want to do harm banks are obviously a target for crime a lot of the worst mass shootings we've seen have been people in totally innocent surrounds like um the country music festival uh, las vegas or schools or wherever and you know do we really want to live in a society where everyone walks around in kevlar and is armed just in case um
2: And would you just then push the problem elsewhere? Then would it become shopping malls? Would it become, you know, all these other movie theatres? Do we have to then have it everywhere? It's sort of a, yeah, how long is a piece of string kind of argument. And I think the the other thing, though, that this whole that as I said has come up this time is, you know, it is good in a way that some whilst that debate over more guns, less guns is so polarized in America, I wonder whether if some middle ground can be found about some of the serious flaws in the background check system, i.e., it's not a centralized system where all agencies are forced to put information in there that could prevent or well, potentially alert gun sellers to um potentially problematic gun buyers. Um, but then you've got the gun show loophole where you don't need a background check to buy a gun from a gun show in a lot of states. And I just wonder whether it's not it's not sexy stuff to talk about. It's not visually interesting for TV, um, as visually interesting as it is to, say, film a teacher being trained how to use a gun. It's intangible because you never know how many, you know, mass shootings were stopped because that person wasn't able to buy a gun.
1: But, I mean, in, in Florida, my understanding was that... that- that guy legally purchased his weapon, mm. right? I don't want to say his name because it gives him more mm. notoriety, but a background check wouldn't have stopped him, would no, it? No,
2: but the in terms of there being holes in the system, the FBI had two reports about him which yeah. did went unfollowed up. And so I suppose when I say background checks, it's also just you know, generally the safety nets that should be there. What's the point in having a tip line at the FBI if the tips don't go? I get it,
1: but I mean, I also feel some sympathy for the FBI Mm. too in, like, I heard their explanation about the the sheer number of tips they get. Mm. Many of them are vexatious people, you know, Mm. having a go at their enemies. I'm not excusing them. They obviously made a mistake and they've admitted that. But I think, um, you know, if you're relying on that kind of thing, it's still shifting the argument away from easy access to weapons of mass destruction and death.
0: Um, what, what does it say about the state of the debate in America that, again, we've seen some of the survivors labelled as actors and we've seen it referred to their grief as put on as a show? Does, is this, is, this, a, is really. this a real state of mind that some Americans have or is it a few people peddling conspiracy theories, or is there something of, in between?
1: Like, part of a bigger picture trend that people, I think, will say things on social media that they would never say to a person's face, and that's where I've seen most of it, apart from the fringe kind of media elements on, on the right now. Um, but I think, yeah, it's really it's disgusting. It's sickening. Um, it just displays the most basic lack of human empathy, um, and it's really unhelpful. I
2: think, yeah, you're absolutely right, and I think the, you know, the the the... The traction that the concept of fake news has had in the last two years is evidence that, you know, the stage has been primed for these types of conspiracies to have more traction than ever before. And that kid who has been accused of being an actor, David Hogg, we interviewed him in Florida. And admittedly, he was remarkable for a 17-year-old. I've never interviewed anyone like him. He was incredibly media savvy and he is part of the TV department at the school but <laughs> he was sort of stopping and starting when a noise would go past like instead of waiting for our cameraman to say hey mate wait a second and he would turn the right way and he clipped the microphone on the right way and he did all the right things and I said to him and he had some really uh, you know p- sort of punchy kind of lines that he was saying to describe things and I said you know you sound very um, considered in what you're saying um, and he said yeah I know it's like I sound like I'm reading off cue cards but that's because I've done about 100 interviews this was two days or the day after two days after the shooting and so i wonder whether there's a sort of a perception that maybe some of them seem a little excessively emotive or That their stories are sounding repetitive when they appear on the different news networks, but that's just what's bound to happen. Like you're going to hone the narrative of what happened and that can't be interpreted as being an actor or being staged. That's just the horrible reality of having to process what you went through and talk about it.
1: Yeah, and I think also too it's just part of the fact that Americans are probably the best communicators in the Mm. world and that most people in Australia probably don't realise that every high school just about in America has its own um, TV department and TV (laughs) show which (laughs) broadcast So these guys are basically, you know, media trained before they even finish high school. Um,
0: yeah. So. I think one of the kids was asked, oh, what do you say to the fact that they're claiming that you're actors? And he said, oh, you haven't seen my um, performance in the local school play last year. <laughs> I am not a good actor at all. Which And which just goes to show these kids that, you know, have their heads screwed on right and they're just quite incredible what they've done so far, which leads me to wanting to just quickly extrapolate where this goes from here. There's all these marches that are now planned. We've seen some of them happen quite organically this week. There's supposedly a national walkout that's planned for next month and then a rally in DC the month after that. Will this momentum be sustained, do you think, this time or is there a possibility that this flames out before we get there?
2: I wonder, I think the strategy of these students is quite interesting. The fact that we're still talking about this a week later is pretty remarkable because I think all the other ones have fallen away pretty quickly. Um, The fact that there's a gap and then they're going to come back, not unlike the women's march after Donald Trump's... Um, You know, he won the election in November. He was inaugurated in January and the day after a million people arrived in Washington. It was pretty phenomenal. Mm. Um, So I wonder whether that's a, a good strategy to kind of keep the momentum going. And you could maybe imagine that in that time there may be pressure for governments to act. I think the Florida state legislature, despite voting against you know earlier this week voting against considering an assault rifle ban they had hundreds of students arrive on their doorstep this week um, and demand action be taken they're only sitting for another two weeks and a lot of them are up for re-election this year so they may make the calculation that something has to be done it's unlikely to be enough to satisfy a lot of these kids but it could be some of these you know more minor measures that we've been talking about so potentially but again wait and see.
1: Um, I think it will only happen if they can sustain it for more than a year. I think there's virtually no chance of meaningful national reform while Republicans hold both the House and the Senate and the presidency, and that's not because there's not a lot of sympathy on the Republican side. I know there is, or because Republicans are bad people, but the level the of influence the NRA has over Republican primaries, what we would call pre-selections in Australia, is huge. They put out a report card for everyone. The idea that these guys are going to... Um, put their own necks on the line before November would be truly extraordinary. And I hope I'm wrong, but I think it would take um, a change in the midterms for meaningful action to come about.
2: It was interesting. I was talking to a politician the other day who was saying if you... The the NRA send every politician a report a card to say, you know, how would you vote on X, Y, Z? Um, And apparently if you don't send it back, you get a C or a D. Um, But if you vote (laughs) against any, you know, particular question, you get an F. So most of them just don't send it back and get a pretty average crappy rating. But I think that's a really good point. You know, it's going to have to wait until the midterms before anything changes. And one of the things that struck me today was I didn't realise the NRA only has five million members. And when you think about it, and a kid brought this up at the CNN town hall last night, the money that they actually give to these politicians is not massively significant. And the kid said to Marco Rubio, who's taken money from the NRA, you know, I'm sure we could find enough donations in this room Mm -hmm. to outfund you compared to what the NRA is promising. But it's much deeper than that. And I think that's the other thing. Money's one thing, but it's also these politicians go back and talk to their constituents, some of whom come to rallies with guns because you can open carry in a lot of states. And that's what they're facing. And so Mm -hmm. it is a... You're right, Connor, it's sort of like it's a deeper thing and the momentum's going to have to be sustained and these kids are going to have to, and their voting age supporters are going to have to turn up at these primaries and at the, you know, midterm rallies and stuff and say we're not going to have it.
1: And I was just going to say too, you know, um, from the NRA's point of view, you'd have to say that in terms of how to run a political campaign, how to gain influence and how to control a public debate, they're really almost without peer um, mm what they do for their point of view and for their supporters. Um, While a lot of people disagree with it, um, they're incredibly effective.
0: Yeah, well, let's hope that we're covering rallies and, you know, promotion of change in gun laws in America over the next few months and not more mass shootings, because obviously at this rate we've seen, I think, more than a dozen this year, depending on what statistics you use. But... If we're reporting on marches on Washington, it's a hell of a lot better than sending staff to Florida to cover another one of these tragedies. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll talk to you again next week.